Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So a funny thing happened on the way to the gospel reading. That probably sounded familiar. And that's because it's from the gospel of Luke. And you probably heard it closer to Christmas. So here's the the gospel from Matthew 2 this morning. Uh that Cece wisely realized she had read that before, and I said, no, it's probably fine, but it wasn't. <clears throat> okay, uh, so Merry Christmas, but let's, we're going to fast forward. Uh, so here's what the reading for this morning is. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And that's going to make the sermon make a lot more sense. (laughs) Although that might have been a fun, that would have been a fun, you know, an exercise. Um, It is surely a sign of God's grace that you do not have to be a professional theologian to be a Christian. Here at St. Charles, we actually do have a disproportionately high number of folks who have done some kind of theological study, but most of us have been spared that crucible of drudgery. Um, I can fondly remember when I was in graduate school being introduced to other graduate students and dreading that moment when they would ask what I was studying or what program I was a part of and trying really hard to build up enough camaraderie so that when I said the words divinity school, they just didn't run in the other direction. Theology, and by extension, theologians, get kind of a bad rap. Because the general feeling is that talking about something as profound and mysterious as God gets suddenly quite boring when it becomes an academic discipline. But we do need good theology. It matters for us even if we're not professionals. Because what we believe about God and how we understand our place in the world matters for how we live. Many of us have a skill of some kind or a craft that we've learned over many years. You can see some of that handiwork here in the church or around the grounds. You can taste it when you go to someone's house and they prepare a meal for you. It's good to have that kind of skill. And it's good to develop some kind of theological ability, too, to be a skilled amateur theologian, just as you might be a skilled amateur baker or woodworker. 
So with that in mind, this morning, I want to talk about baptism. Baptism, which we will celebrate this morning with Dagny and Magnolia and their families, welcomes us into the Christian life. And it commissions each of us to be ambassadors of Jesus. Whether we use lots of water or just a little sprinkle, baptism is important. And if that's the case, we probably should try to understand it on more than just a surface level. We need a kind of practical, walking around in the world, baptismal theology. So baptism is one of the big two sacraments. That's a very technical term. Uh, As one of the big two directly associated with Jesus, uh, obviously communion is the other one, baptism is the foundation on which everything else rests for the Christian life. Whether you're baptized as a child or as an adult, in a river or in a font, it's the beginning of a new life. It is, despite what you have heard, not just a rite of passage, but a declaration of belief and trust. As such, baptism is not primarily about what we can offer God, but about the grace that God promises to give to us. So there are at least three great themes of baptism that I think we need to be reminded of periodically. Here they are. So first, baptism unites us to Christ in his death and his resurrection. In the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 10, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Throughout the New Testament, baptism is described as happening in the name of Jesus. If you perform an action in someone's name, you're acting on their authority. If you're a child and you go to your sibling and say, mom and dad said do this, you're acting on mom and dad's authority. So to be baptized in the name of Jesus brings those who are baptized under Jesus's lordship. We're united with him. And because he defeated sin and death and his resurrection, we are able to, to be dead to sin but alive to God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. That union means that all the good things that Christ accomplished, that we are incapable of doing for ourselves, are assigned to us. We are victorious and have the hope of resurrection and new life. We affirm this each week in the Nicene Creed. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, baptism is the beginning of a new life because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed. Here we can go back to Jesus' own baptism in the Jordan River. John baptizes him, and when Jesus emerges from the water, two dramatic things happen. First, you get the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And second, there's the spoken word of the voice of God. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit confirms who Jesus is and what he will do. In our baptism, we are similarly anointed by the Holy Spirit and claimed as daughters and sons of God. That's why we mark the foreheads of the baptized with a little cross with holy oil. 
The oil is a reminder that we have been sealed by God and brought into the fellowship of Jesus' disciples. That's the kind of thing that's not easily washed off, no matter how hard we might try. Certainly, some people manage to live their lives very comfortably as if they were never baptized, or as if their baptism had no meaning or effect. But we believe that in that moment, we are being brought into the fullness of God's desires for us. When, with the approval of the Father and the name of the Son and the sealing of the Spirit, we are brought into the fullness of a relationship with the one true God. Finally, baptism leads us to forgiveness and redemption. And that's because through baptism, Jesus is conveying grace to us that we could not earn on our own. All over the New Testament, baptism is connected with forgiveness and redemption, starting with the Apostle Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2, where he says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's clear that baptism is not redemption itself, but the two are pretty closely tied together. It's almost impossible to find one without the other. Now, certainly, it's possible to be saved by grace by other means. God God reserves the right to do whatever God wants to do at any given moment. It's one of the things about God that's most frustrating. (laughs) But there is, for those who come to the water, no danger in baptism. If we come with faithful and genuine hearts, seeking to know Christ and be known by him, he will meet us there. So those three themes, union with Christ, the beginning of new life, and redemption from sin, all point to this very deep truth. That baptism is a means of grace through which God is acting to bless people and to call them into relationship with God himself. Like the wise men who are coming to Bethlehem, seeking the Christ child, all people are called to find Jesus. To pay homage to him, to bend their knees to the one true king, to submit to his lordship. The degree to which we do or do not properly give Christ the honor that he deserves is a matter, unfortunately, left to each of us individually. Baptism is not a guarantee that everything is going to turn out okay, that we or our children will be protected from all harm and will grow up to be good, perfect, faithful Christian disciples. We all know some baptized people who lost their faith or who chucked it away as fast as they could, or some combination of the two. Instead, what baptism guarantees is that the living God pledges to honor the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, to be with us always, even when we stumble or stray or lose our hope completely. In just a little bit, we're going to welcome two tiny little babies, young children, into the fellowship of those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. We baptize infants not because it's a guarantee, but as a sign of God's promise that they are embraced by the covenant community of Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. When we present infants to be baptized, their parents vow to raise them in the knowledge and love of the Lord 
with the expectation that one day they will articulate full, vibrant Christian faith for themselves. All of that is an act of extreme faith in God's word and God's promises. This morning, Dagny and Maggie will have promises made on their behalf, not just by their parents and family members, but also by all of you, by the wider church community. That's why baptism is not done in private. We're all in this together. You may not have a theology degree by God's grace or a clergy collar. You may not get to wear a fun outfit every Sunday. But as part of the family of faith, we are all responsible for the upbringing and discipleship of these children. You will be their Sunday school teachers and fellow acolytes and their strict surrogate grandparents. You will be their examples in the faith and provide sage wisdom to their exasperated parents. You will be a light for Christ in the lives of these two precious children and their families. By the grace of God, they will grow up in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And the people who will preach the gospel to them first are gathered in this room. Friends and family and fellow sojourners on the way with Jesus. Before they ever hear a preached sermon, they will see how you live your life. And they will evaluate the vibrance of faith in Jesus Christ based on how we follow and how we show his love to them. All of this is a gift. Even in the moments when it feels like a tremendous challenge, even in the long years where we may feel inadequate to the task, God has given us this opportunity to be joined with him, to step more fully into the life of faith for our benefit. In baptism, we are united with him and called to new life and redeemed from our sin, all of us together. Thanks be to God for such a wonderful gift and for the opportunity to enter into that life more fully together with Dagny and with Maggie. Amen. Amen.